Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast series here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we're talking to Will Creeley, who's the legal director at FIRE. Welcome to the show, Will. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I am so glad you're here. Could we start by having you tell us about yourself? Yeah, sure. My name is Will Creeley, <laughs> just to restate. Um, I have been working for FIRE, which is the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, uh, since I graduated from law school back in 2006. Uh, I wake up every day and am thrilled to have the opportunity to defend the expressive rights uh, and other core civil liberties of college students and faculty across the country. It's interesting work. It's It can be exhausting work. Uh, it's work that has challenged me for these many years. I've never done anything in my life for this extended amount of time. Uh, So it has to be pretty interesting to keep me waking up and excited and ready to go every day. And uh, here I am. And so that leads to my next question. Like, how did you get to FIRE? What was the process of going from law school to FIRE? Did you, did they recruit at your school? How did you hear about them? And how did you say, yes, I'm going to leap over and do that? You know, it's a great question. I'm kind of pleased to answer it. Explains a little bit about about why I like what I do. Uh, when I was an undergrad, I worked a lot for uh, political organizations. I was a co-founder of the Campus Green Party. Uh, I worked for uh, Ralph Nader's uh, presidential campaign way back in uh, the year 2000, which feels like many lifetimes ago at this point uh, here in 2020. And in so doing, I really became excited about the possibility of individual student agency, uh, that students had power by banding together, uh, by speaking out, by calling it as they saw it, uh, by, you know, taking charge or playing an active part in our democracy. And that that seemed really, uh, really pretty cool to me. And uh, the opportunity seemed uh, boundless. And I had gone to school uh, as an undergrad with some fairly murky idea of wanting to be a journalism major. Uh, and I, I was lucky enough to take classes at NYU's Gallatin School of Individualized Study, uh, which allows students to kind of craft their own major, follow their own interests. So I, I did a lot of independent study work and it took classes from a variety of uh, departments and it was, it was pretty terrific. And I highly recommend folks to check out Gallatin, both faculty and students. It's still a, a really vibrant and terrific place to be. But Anyway, in, in doing the political work and, and living in those uh, also very interesting political times, I uh, came to think about law school as a real possibility. Uh, I knew I wanted to go someplace where words had uh, a particular kind of power, uh, social power, legal power, uh, political power. Uh, it was fascinating to me to see society organize itself in this way and to realize uh, via the political process and my participation in it uh, that words could really do things. Uh, my father was a poet, so I always knew <laughs> that words had uh, multifaceted and multi-layered potential and possibility, but uh, seeing them in this political sphere was was really pretty interesting. Uh, and kind of in a continuation a little bit of, of my idea about journalism, but maybe even more so, I kind of thought, I want to go into the belly of this particular beast and see what kind of delicate surgery <laughs> might be able to be performed. So I went to law school uh, right after graduating from uh, NYU Gallatin. I just went across Washington Square Park in, in uh 
in New York, uh, in, in Greenwich Village, uh, to the law school campus. And I knew I wanted to do public interest work. I knew I wasn't interested in corporate uh, law or uh, big law, as they call it. Uh, I wanted to do some kind of uh, service law. And the First Amendment, again, being being the son of a poet, um, the idea of freedom of speech, I mean, that was always cool to me. I had worked as a DJ uh, a lot in undergrad and in high school. And uh, I remember uh, vividly, you know, shopping in CD stores as a kid and seeing uh, Tipper Gore's parental advisory stickers on, on, uh, on record labels, you know, and I just knew that uh, words could change minds. So First Amendment seemed particularly powerful to me. And uh, I took a legal internship with FIRE uh, the summer after my first year of law school, my first of three. And yeah, it was pretty, pretty interesting stuff. Uh, and I felt connected to the people I was helping in a powerful way. I felt like I had made a difference to them by defending their rights to speak uh, as they saw fit. And that was really important to me. The next summer I spent uh, with the Federal Communications Commission, which is also an education of a kind and also pretty interesting, but a different kind of work. I remember feeling as though as much as I admired the folks I was working with and, and respected and, and was really kind of impressed by the, the scope and breadth of the agency's work, working in Washington felt fairly removed from people uh, beyond just kind of people in the, in the theoretical or abstracted sense from individual folks. Uh, and that was something that FIRE gave me the opportunity to do to really kind of be the person to, to help somebody who really needed it, a one-on-one connection. And so uh, when I graduated from law school, uh, I knew that fire was a good fit for me and started working there. And that was 2006. And I tell you, Christina, <laughs> it's been a, a wild trip ever since. Like, as I say, I've never done anything for this long. And I'm always kind of amazed that, you know, I've got friends and uh, family and my wife who've all kind of worked for different places. And here I am all these years later still doing it. And uh, yeah, I, I value that. You know, at this point, I have kind of a an institutional memory of, of, of accumulated experience and that's useful to me and i think it's useful for the folks that i help so yeah that's that's the story in a nutshell up to this point and what does it mean that you're the legal director yeah that's a that's a cool question uh you know the way fire works we have a staff of about 50 now and boy i should know exactly how many attorneys that is but um it's i want to say it's about there are about 20 attorneys on staff. And when we defend student and faculty rights uh, in our nonpartisan way, uh, we will uh, use different tools to make sure that those rights are protected. Uh, what I mean by that is some of our lawyers uh, will engage in advocacy work uh, on behalf of students and faculty. Uh, they will either write letters to colleges and universities that might be censoring a student or threatening a faculty member's rights. Uh, sometimes those conflicts can't be solved by correspondence. Sometimes uh, we need the lawyers on our staff who litigate to file a lawsuit uh, to vindicate the student or faculty member's rights. Uh, we have attorneys on staff who work proactively uh, with schools to reform uh, policies that might infringe on expressive rights to kind of stop problems before they happen to act in a, in a prophylactic uh, preventative sense. 
we also have attorneys on staff who work in state capitals and in Washington, D.C. to make sure that uh, any federal or state agency action or federal or state legislation uh, is sufficiently respectful of student First Amendment rights uh, and other, other rights, also uh, due process rights uh, and so forth. So as the legal director, it's my job to make sure that all of our attorneys are working in concert, uh, that all of our uh, strategies are discussed before they're implemented. To give you an example of what I'm talking about, a while ago, let's say five to six years ago, uh, FIRE continued to find student faculty speech on campus quarantined to, boy, that's a, that's a funny verb to use these days, but uh, res- restricted <laughs> to very small, uh, quote unquote, free speech zones on campus. Uh, you would walk onto a public campus and if you were a student or faculty member who wanted to speak out uh, about... Uh, American military presence overseas, about campus grading policies, whatever was on your mind, and you wanted to engage your fellow students uh, in a conversation or or stage a rally or protest, on these campuses, you would be required to go to a small, oftentimes remote zone. And sometimes there would be other onerous requirements too. Sometimes you would have to show your driver's license or obtain uh, permission advance to, to use the zone. Sometimes you'd have to tell administrators what you plan to talk about and they could veto uh, your subject matter. You know, it's pretty pernicious and it's uh, a kind of fear of free speech that I, I really find counterproductive <laughs> to, to use a charitable word in the academic space where all ideas should be discussed and debated, even uh, ideas we disagree with, maybe sometimes even especially those ideas. Uh, but anyway, so these free speech zones were really popping up everywhere. And we had attorneys on staff who were finding students and faculty and writing the school's letters, explaining the problems with the First Amendment uh, presented by these free speech zones. We had attorneys on staff who were going to state capitals to uh argue in favor of uh, preventing the creation of these free speech zones, that is to pass state laws that would uh, prevent schools from establishing these these tiny free speech zones. And we also had attorneys on staff who were working with lawyers uh, to litigate or to file suit themselves against these free speech zones. So it's my job to kind of keep everybody uh, working in the same direction. And it was interesting. It was sometimes kind of like watching different you know, race cars trying to trying to get to the same finish line. Who's going to get there first? Are we going to pass the law that gets rid of the free speech zones? Are we going to convince the school to get rid of them by themselves? Or are we going to sue the school? Like, who, which one of these ways it's going to win? And uh, happily, we've seen a big reduction in the number of free speech zones uh, over the years. And so I'm, I'm pleased with the success of our efforts. But yeah, that's, that's a little bit of what my job is. Also to kind of answer questions and to, you know, consider how rights change as the times change, right? When I first got to fire uh, in 2006, again, you know, feels like lifetimes ago, but the idea of social media was still so new and so unexplored uh, and really kind of so niche. Uh, It was really just for students, you know? So when we had cases involving student speech on Facebook, we would have to explain what Facebook was. We'd have to say student speech on popular social networking site, facebook.com is being censored. And here's an example. And here's what Facebook is in the first place. And you wouldn't have to do that now, right? But 
yeah. it was my job to kind of recalibrate or continue to consider what expressive rights means in each new iteration, whether that's technological, social, and so forth. Today, for example, one of the interesting things we're discussing is what it means for student and faculty rights to protest if facial recognition technology is so prevalent on a campus that the act of engaging in protest is more than just going outside and combining with others of like mind and making your voice heard. It's now going outside and having a record made of your participation in a protest that may be used later in some unknown context. You know, what, what does it mean when we're all on camera outside on campus all the time? Does that change the First Amendment? Does that change our expectations of what protest should mean? Is that right? Is it legal? So it's a fun job in that way. It can be occasionally terrifying, right? It can occasionally feel like, you know, here we are in 2020 in our uh, post-information age dystopia. But, you know, again, that's kind of why I get up and go to work every day because there's always something new. There's always some interesting new angle to engage on. You know, I I tell my kids, I've got a three-year-old and six-year-old and I always tell them, or I'm always reminded by them, how about that, that the urge to censor is a pretty old human instinct, right? Uh, I think for as long as people have been talking to each other, uh, folks have been wanting to tell each other to be quiet or to hush up. And uh, so while that instinct is old, uh, the desire to work through it, right, to hear each other out, to answer bad speech, as we say, in civil liberty circles with more speech that's that's newer and that's i think more powerful so you know when i tell my kids let's let's talk about it you're angry let's talk you know let's figure it out together that's what i'm hoping to do on an individual level with students and faculty and i'm i'm i think at heart an optimist in that way it's interesting that you brought up social media because that's actually how i first heard of you Uh, a couple weeks ago a professor that i recently started following on Twitter, uh, posted something. It was the night of the vice presidential debate. Mm-hmm. Twitter was full of people posting feelings, thoughts, opinions, ideas. Um, some people were putting in historical context and some people were just getting uh, their feelings out there sure. on all sides of the political spectrum. Um, and I remember that um, very quickly a... Twitter page was started for Mike Pence's fly. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm, because yep. there was a fly on his head. And so all sides of the political spectrum and apparently species were <laughs> going in on, on this on social media. And one professor um, who is a history professor in Texas came under fire, no pun intended, right. from her university for the post that she made, which really didn't register with me as is here nor there. It was really part of the um, uh, collective uh, conversations that were being had one tweet at a time. And yet she started getting uh, emails from her university. She started getting um, emails from outside her university and it became this whole thing Mm -hmm. truly in a speed that was stunning. And she reached out to you all and then she posted on Twitter that that fire was was um, 
going to be helping her in this matter. And, and I thought, well, who are they? What do they do? Right. And so that I, I found you on social media because someone's free speech was um, potentially threatened. Yeah, yeah, that was a hell of a case. That's really representative of a lot of what we do. Uh, folks listening, uh, this is uh, Professor Laura Burnett at Collin College yeah, in, in, in Texas. Um, and we've seen so many of cases that are, are like uh, Professor Burnett's where a faculty member uh, will opine on the issue of the day, whether that's the vice presidential debate as it was then or uh, the election or whatever, you know, any of, any of the millions of stories that pass through us, you know, in a, in a week these days. Um, and her tweets uh, caught the eye of uh, others, you know, including legislators. And uh, pretty soon you've got a classic internet outrage mob, you know, uh, ready to call for her punishment, uh, asking how, you know, she can be allowed to teach when she holds views that gasp are critical of public officials, you know, can you believe it? And we're off to the races, you know, and at that point, uh, it's fire's job to step in to remind the school that, hey, no matter what the legislators, the public, the partisan media outlets, no matter what folks are telling you, you cannot punish Professor Burnett because her speech is uh, protected by the First Amendment. Uh, a faculty member at a public university has the First Amendment right to speak as a citizen on, ma- uh, on matters of public concern. And that's just what she was doing. Uh, and you don't sacrifice that right by virtue of being employed by a public university. Uh, you are a, a government employee, sure, but... You don't check your First Amendment rights at that door. Uh, you don't relinquish your right to comment as a citizen. So, yeah, that we've seen more of those cases than I'd like to count. And what I'm always very gratified about uh, about being able to do, uh, what I find very gratifying is being able to be the organization that has the the uh, uh, focus. I mean, that that is our that's our. Uh, reason for being right that's that's our whole deal uh to be that organization that says wait a second <laughs> wait a second uh we're, we're here to we're here to help and uh, i was very pleased that uh professor burnett you know welcomed that help and and there we go and so that one uh is is still uh ongoing in various ways so i'll kind of leave it there but uh maybe by the time this airs we'll have more so check out this will be my first plug of a couple uh the fire.org t-h-e-f-i-r-e dot o-r-g uh, and see if there's more on that case and i i should note here for folks um you know one thing i, I really value about working for fire is that in this case uh professor burnett was critical of the vice president uh who is of course a republican and the uh media uh outrage came from conservative outlets and the partisan backlash came from the right. Uh, one thing I really like about working for fire really is what's kept me there all these years is that while each of us on staff have our own political views and, you know, I certainly do, uh, we team up, um, to defend speech from across the political spectrum. I mean, that, that really means a lot to me. We have defended, uh, professors who said, uh, things that folks on the left uh, find offensive or galling uh, and have called for repercussions for. And just as surely as we pre- defended Professor Burnett's rights, our 
role, as we see it, is to be the honest broker, right? The guarantor of last resort, uh, the the folks who are going to be there uh, no matter what the speech is. I mean, earlier this year, um, you know, we were defending uh, folks who were critical of uh, the protests following the killing of George Floyd. Uh, we've defended professors for uh, supporting uh, the president. Uh, we've defended a professor who uh, affirmed uh, in a statement to local media that he was, he considered himself Antifa. You know, I mean, it really takes all kinds. I, I tell folks when I meet them, you know, if we meet at a party, I mean, member parties, right? Remember meeting people at parties? Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I tell folks, life. right, the, the before times, right? I remember, you know, I, I could say to folks, whatever your political, uh, affiliation is right whatever your 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 leanings are uh i could tell you five cases that would have you think hey you are an awesome freedom fighter you know go get them or i could tell you five cases that i've worked on that would make you think man you are deeply misguided (laughs) and i'm not interested right that's kind of the nature of, of first amendment work it it really uh it doesn't matter what the speech is at some level, right? If it's protected by the First Amendment, fire will defend you. And that, that means a lot to me. It's also very challenging. Sometimes, sometimes it's totally exhausting. You know, my, my boss, Greg Lukianoff, says, uh, if you get to defend speech that you like, it's almost like cheating. <laughs> and I, th- I think that's right. But yeah, it's, uh, it keeps it interesting, that's for sure. And I have notes taped up all around my mic, which is how I do my interviews. And one of the notes I had was, we all like hearing the speech we like hearing. Right, but knowing right. what to do with people, opinions, and words that hurt us is a skill the nation seems to be lacking. And universities have that lack as well. So one of the things I was hoping you could unpack for us is while the First Amendment protection is very strong, it isn't absolute. That's right. So where does it draw the line and how do people know if it's offensive speech, which is protected but is still uncomfortable? And Sure. That's why it's offensive to you. Um, And it crosses the line into uh, no longer protected by the First Amendment because there is a line there. Uh, What's offensive to one person is not offensive to another, but there is a line when we're not talking about it being offensive, we're talking about it being dangerous or whatnot. Sure, yeah. Talk to us about those they're not even really gray areas, they're lines, but I don't think most of us know where they are. Yeah, this is such a good question. I, I'm grateful to you for asking it because the second question folks will say <laughs> say to me when uh, I meet them at a party, something is like, all right, but are you one of those First Amendment absolutists? Do you think that just anything goes? And I say, aha, no, I do not, right? As, just as you say, Christina, there are uh, categories of uh, expression that the Supreme Court uh, and other courts have, have defined as being beyond the bounds of the First Amendment's protection. It is just not the case that all speech is protected. Most speech is protected and speech that is merely offensive. And I I say merely with a caveat, like I'm I'm a human being. I can have my feelings hurt. I know uh, that offensive speech is is sometimes, you know, really tough to deal with. But speech that does not uh, meet one of the categorical exceptions to the First Amendment is presumptively protected. So to give you a few examples of speech that isn't protected, um, whilst at the same time recognizing that that merely offensive speech to the listener, you know, that, that merely is doing a lot of work, right? Um, true threats are not protected. That is speech that uh, is directed to uh, putting another in serious fear of bodily harm or death. That's That's the basic paraphrase uh, of the test. So if you are 
uh, talking to somebody and you say, Hey, keep, keep talking like that. Here's, you know, and you show them that you're holding a gun or something like that, right? That, that is not protected. You've gone too far. Uh, one that a lot of folks remember, although it's vitality, it's a legal doctrine is, you know, somewhat disputed sometimes, especially at the federal level fighting words, right? If you are, uh, going back and forth with somebody and you say something that, uh, will cause somebody to respond with violence that might be uh, beyond the First Amendment's protection in certain instances, particularly oftentimes in, in state courts. Um, uh, let's see, <laughs> go down, going down the list, intimidation, uh, likewise, is a kind of uh, true threat uh, that uh, causes somebody to fear that, that you're about to harm them. Um, Let's see, incitement, incitement to violence, that's a, uh, or unlawful activity, that's another good one. Uh, the idea being that you are saying something that you intend uh, and uh, the hearer is reasonably likely to hear as uh, uh, incitement to violence. I say, let's, let's do this, uh, let's do this unlawful thing. It's speech that is intended to and reasonably likely to provoke imminent, uh, imminent, that word is important, it's gotta happen right then imminent lawless action. So if you are talking to others and saying, hey, let's go beat up that person across the street, and you know that the others that you're talking to are going to agree with you, and you say, let's do it, uh, that is incitement. Or if you are, um, again, kind of egging people on in that way, uh, and your speech is intended to uh, and and likely to have them act in in an imminently uh, unlawful way, that's incitement. So that's not protected. Uh, one context that we, we talk a lot about on campus is uh, discriminatory harassment, right? Speech that is uh, directed at others on the basis of a protected class status like uh, race, uh, gender, uh, uh, national origin, religion. Um, that speech loses protection uh, when it is directed at someone uh, and is so, uh, offensive. So I'm sorry. So, um, boy, <laughs> it's been a long day. Also I'm blanking, um, severe, pervasive and objectively offensive, uh, that it, uh, it will uh, deter, uh, somebody from, uh, an educational benefit. So severe, pervasive and objectively offensive, uh, speech on the basis of a protected class status that will will prevent somebody from obtaining an educational benefit. And that uh, encompasses a great deal of the speech that I think people uh, broadly uh, just describe as hate speech. Uh, So it's a high standard, but it has to be uh, to protect a great deal of uh, what the First Amendment was really designed to protect, which is uh, political speech. So when do you cross a line from political speech protected in our uh, pluralistic democracy, even though it might be uh, offensive to some or many, or even all of us, uh, to uh, discriminatory harassment. It's got to meet that bar so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive uh, that it prevents somebody from obtaining an educational opportunity or benefit. And that's a distinction uh, that, that puts the United States uh, and our constitutional tradition in stark relief to uh, other uh, nations. Uh, one of the most fascinating classes I took as a law student was a comparative constitutional law, where the American tradition of, of uh, protecting civil liberties, most particularly freedom of speech, is contrasted with uh, the 
regimes in other countries, and it's it is a it is a, a, a telling difference. But the idea is, and, and this is why I think at its whole at its base, the, the First Amendment is a is an optimistic commitment uh, in some ways, is that these hateful statements are better rebutted and redressed out in the open uh, than hidden as you know quiet. Uh, secret attitudes that aren't ever given uh, what uh, Justice Louis Brandeis called the uh, disinfectant, the, the most powerful disinfectant, sunlight. That is, if you force those v- bigoted views or hateful views or discriminatory views underground, uh, they're never uh, debunked. Uh, they're never uh, confronted. They're never fully acknowledged. Uh, and that doesn't mean they're gone. It just means they're harder to fight. I mean, I, I think that um, there's a lot to be said about uh, the idea that we can just pat ourselves on the back and think, well, we've, we've advanced enough as a society to, to be beyond all that. Uh, but no, I, I don't think that's true. I think that the best answer for uh, racist speech or sexist speech homophobic speech, bigoted speech of any kind, uh, is to recognize it and speak back, right? I always tell students, because it's a tough thing to deal with, right? This is, you know, the instinct, I think, is to say, hey, I, I hate that speech. I don't want to hear that. You know, let, let's let's ban that. I mean, that I understand that impulse 100%. And it's, it's a, it's a uh, completely cognizable and... Uh, comprehensible response, but I don't think it ultimately addresses the problem, right? It's, I think the thing I try and remind students is the same first amendment that protects somebody's right to say something racist protects your right to say, Hey, that's, that's racist. You know, that, that is that. And from there, the conversation can either proceed or it can end right either way. But what you know, then if you are the, the student who, has called out the racism, you know that 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 other person harbors those views. And that's valuable information, right? Uh, Fire co-founder Harvey Silverglade uh, is a uh, a criminal defense lawyer and a civil liberties lawyer uh, working in in Massachusetts and still is. And he had a story about defending uh, among the the many folks he defended back in the the 70s. Uh, At some point, he's defending, I think, the First Amendment rights of of Nazis. And somebody said, Harvey, you know, you're, you're a Jewish man. How, how can you defend these, these folks? These folks are evil. He said, yeah, that may be. But if there are Nazis in the room, I sure as hell want to know who they are and where they are so I can know how to get away from them, right? The idea that when you, you have that knowledge of where hatred is, that's useful information. If you don't know where it is and you don't know it exists, you're flying blind, right? That, that is, that is uh, you may feel better in the moment, but there's danger lurking underneath. And that, that, that is... That is um, pernicious and, and can be absolutely devastating. So I, I tell students that this is a, a, a tough thing, but it's also an empowering thing. Uh, the idea that we have the freedom to confront it and push forward. And even just, you know, I'm about to hit 40 in January. I think of the changes I've seen in my lifetime uh, with regard to uh, social acceptance of LGBTQ folks, for example, or uh, even though there's a hell of a lot of work to do in so many respects, but the idea of just social acceptance of difference generally 
that's happened because of conversations. I think not not by suppressing those conversations. And those are, are hard conversations, wrenching, divisive conversations. But I think they're important. Um, so that's that's my kind of optimistic commitment. And then my pessimistic commitment, <laughs> Christina, just to uh, play the other side of the coin, is that if you allow the government to restrict speech that in its definition is offensive or hurtful or hateful, the folks who will benefit from that restriction are going to be the folks who are in the majority every time. That is, power will protect power. And, for example, the current administration uh, or folks near it, I I don't have a a good citation here, but uh, it's my understanding that folks have said, you know, Black Lives Matter should be a, a domestic terrorist group, right? That the speech at, at uh, Black Lives Matter rallies is uh, incitement to violence. And if you allow the government to define it in that way, and we don't have the First Amendment protections that we do, you might see folks who uh, you might personally be sympathetic to thrown in jail, right? The idea is that we can't trust the government to decide for us what is and isn't, what is and is not hateful or beyond the pale, uh, and that there's a real danger in doing so. Um, and you know, I, I think the, the last four years have been instructive in that way, uh, to some folks about how much power you really want to give the government to define what we can and can't think about. That's, uh, that's scary. So. I think it's instructive as well in what you were talking about, which is if conversations are held off screen, so to speak, right. they're still being held. They're not going away. Uh, only like-minded people are having them. They're continuing to provide the same data to each other as a confirmation bias or as a thought bubble. Mm-hmm. And it only builds strength that way. And then when it does come out into the open discourse, people are blindsided by it. I thought we were post-racial. I thought right. we were post-sexist. We, um, and we aren't. Um, and I haven't got a date in mind for when we will be because it's so much work um, to get there. But if we're not aware of where the biases still are and how they're being fueled, the people who want to have the conversations and bring forth the education and, and start to work on these don't know where to start. They don't know who to talk to about who needs the information. And they don't know how to hold a discourse that can be heard because both sides have been only listening to their own side for so long. Where is the middle space where all of this is talked about? You got it. That's that's exactly right. And that that, that kind of sealed feedback loop is really concerning. You know, I, I think that that drives continued polarization. And it also, I, I think, can lead to a really defeatist <laughs> and paranoid style of uh, imagining the world. You know, I, I know I succumb to it as much as anybody else. You can just feel uh, really freaked out by like, how could somebody think this way, right? How could somebody have these conclusions? And that may be a, a great question, right? It really may be a, a, a source of wonder. Uh, but I do believe in the power of dragging those uh, conversations that otherwise, you'd be, as you say, would be having off screen into the public sphere and allowing uh, them to be rebutted or answered and, and, uh, and thus hopefully, you know, rejected. I think there's a lot of power to that. You know, my, my boss, um, 
Greg Lukianoff uh, put it well a couple of years ago. He says that uh, uh, having, uh, you know, bans on speech that is offensive but protected is kind of like taking aspirin for some terminal disease. You know, you, you may feel better, but man, the disease is still there, right? You haven't cured anything, right? You've just pushed it out of the way for a little while. And that's that's really true. One thing about defending free speech rights at the college level, to your, your point about starting those conversations, um, you know, we still live in a country where uh, oftentimes folks won't experience uh, close personal interactions, whether in class or uh, on campus or a dorm room or on a team or a student group or whatever, with folks who look differently than they do, pray differently than they do, love differently than they do, think differently, have different political uh, affiliations or, or allegiances until they get to college. So you'll be living in one fairly uh, sealed bubble. And then at the age of 18, just when you think you've got everything figured out, wow, <laughs> it's a big world out there. So oftentimes, some of the cases we get uh, where students get in trouble are cases where they just haven't had their minds changed yet, right? They may be, you know, stuck with conceptions of other folks that they had uh, when they're in high school or, or just that are endemic to where they're from, whether those are racist, uh, bigoted conceptions or just, you know, clumsy conceptions, you know, whatever they are, right? There's a learning process that happens when you get people who are different around each other uh, and they get to talking to each other. I think learning can can really flourish if it's, if it's allowed to, right? If we give each other the space to do that. So one of the things that FIRE has been working on lately on that note is orientation programs to kind of work with schools so that when students show up, you say, hey, guess what, students? You're going to meet people who you disagree with. You're going to meet people you don't like. And we're not telling you that you have to like them. We're not telling you that you're going to, it's your job to change anybody's minds or vice versa. But here's how we do it in the United States. And these are the advantages of it, right? These are the, the places that uh, we will open up for a dialogue and conversation. If you choose to avail yourselves of them, great. Uh, but one, you know, it really does take all kinds here and we are going to, uh, respect your rights to think and talk and debate amongst yourselves. Uh, and we're going to come out better for it. You know, I, I think that that again is a really optimistic and important consideration. Um, in our orientation programs, you know, I, I want to say that all the materials I've think are viewable online. Um, there's a handbook. Yeah. Can you yeah. plug the handbook that, that ties into what you just said? Yeah. There's, there's our, there's our guide and there's our orientation uh, book. And I, I will make sure that the link is sent <laughs> after we record this, but it's all on the fire.org. Uh, and that's, that's work we've been trying to do because we want to talk to students right away and say, Hey, look, this might be hard. This might be tricky. This might be confusing. This might be terrifying, or it might be great. It also might be empowering <laughs> once you get past it. But the First Amendment has your back. And this is why uh, we do the work we do. So we've talked about the limits of the First Amendment so that students and professors have a sense of when they're protected and when to go get help for that because they have a right to be protected. Things have gone too far they, and they have a right to get help. Mm-hmm. But the vast majority of speech that's out there that doesn't fall into that category, that becomes offensive, uncomfortable, hurtful, painful, psychologically too much for you to take in at that moment. What are the tools and tips you give people for what to do in those moments? Because we want to empower people as well 
when it's a too far for you, whether it's too far for you in that moment or too far for you always, what practical things can you do when you just cannot listen to someone talk to you like this? Yeah, that's a great question, too. I, I would say that, you know, the First Amendment uh, protects your right to speak back, but it also protects your right to walk away, right? You don't have to uh, respond. And there can be an, an expressive power in uh, choosing to walk away. So that's a first instant instance, right? You don't, you don't have to do it. Uh, second of all, uh, I do really try and tell students that they are strong enough to live with freedom, right? They're strong enough to live with the freedom to disagree with other folks. They're strong enough to live in a world where other folks disagree with them and that they can find others of like mind to band together. That's an important component of the First Amendment. You have the freedom uh, of uh, expressive association. You can find your affinity groups. You can find your uh, student organizations where, where folks do agree with you and bond and build together uh, and then you'll have company, right? You'll have company to get out uh, and either change minds or ignore folks as you see fit. I remember a couple of years ago, uh, right after I got done with, uh, it was my first day back from paternity leave after the birth of my daughter. I was lucky enough to be able to take uh, four weeks off, which is, was a real blessing. And I, I wish everybody uh, in this country could do it. And I, I would love to see that because it was important. And on my first day back, uh, fire got a media inquiry from the folks of the New York Times. And they said, hey, uh, this white supremacist is speaking at the University of Florida. Uh, can you write a, a column, you know, telling students how to deal with it? And somehow it got to my desk. And I'm like, all right, Creeley, welcome back. <laughs> Here you go. You know, we need a draft by 5 p.m. And it was just after lunch. I thought, oh, boy. All right. So now I'm back in it. I got to shake off my baby brain and get get going. So I wrote a comment. I was pretty proud of it because I, I think it, it managed to capture the best things that I, I, my best advice, right? And so, yeah, number one, you can ignore it. Number two, you can band together and you can think about the allies that you'll find in banding together, which can also be very heartening. You can make fun of people, right? You, humor is an important, powerful thing, uh, especially when confronted with folks who like to accrue, you know, some kind of uh, notoriety or some sense of uh, influence or, or, um, or, or want to be normalized. Uh, you, you can say, wait a second, we're just not going to take this seriously. You can protest. You know, you have the right to, to stand up and say no. Uh, one thing I always advise students to do is you can ask hard questions. Uh, a lot of the claims of, uh, uh, folks, I'm thinking particularly of, of racists here, you know, it's just, just bad science, you know, bad, ugly, uh, easily debunked claims that you can just, you can, just, you know, if you, if you want to invest the time, you can go after them. I remember folks asking about uh, a Holocaust denial. Well, if you actually think about like some of these, these really ugly claims that Holocaust deniers, they're just absurd on their face, right? So if you yank that out and expose it, you ask somebody a hard question, uh, that can be incredibly powerful. So you, you can, uh, educate yourself and and rebut. You know that's that's also extremely powerful. Um, yeah, again, you could ignore speech, and you can kind of uh, just choose whichever method makes most sense for you. And in that way, uh, you have, I think, discharge your moral duty to respond if you feel so compelled. Uh, and and that can be a really powerful thing. That's how uh, democracy works. You know, again, thinking of the protests from this this past uh, summer. You know, it's it's uh, or or 
the uh, folks who are going out and voting right now, uh, I always think that there's a value in in showing up and being counted. And the First Amendment really protects your right to to show up and be counted if you feel up to it. If you if you need to uh, cool out, you know, the First Amendment protects your right to to take it easy as well. Um, there's no right way to do it, but uh, the First Amendment does have your back, and that's really the message I try and uh, try and communicate to students. It's not it's not a one way street. It doesn't just protect uh, the, the racist speaker, uh, or the bully or the bigot. It also protects the folks who want to call those people out, whether in the press, freedom of the press, whether via protest, freedom of assembly, uh, whether in government, you know, petition to redress grievances, uh, or whether just on your own speech as an individual, you know, the first amendment uh, is designed to protect you in that instance. And that's, that's really important. It's, uh, it's powerful and it's worth defending. Some of the listeners won't have had the orientation that you guys offer and they're on campus and they want to figure out how to open constructive dialogues with people that they've not had a chance to meet before. What are some of the top tips in your handbook where you're, that you have there for encouraging students to start to get to know people that they wouldn't have met in their own neighborhood? Yeah, and now they have an opportunity here on campus to really meet all kinds of people. How do they go about that in a way where they can um, feel like they've got some tools to help them start that? Because I'm a very shy person. So walking up to somebody I don't know in the first place is um, a challenge. And if I have some tips, (laughs) conversation starting tips and some ideas for when you know, like this is not working, you know, stop. Um, What would you say? Yeah, that's another good question. You know, as someone who I think can be, I, I feel personally both very sympathetic uh, to introverts and, and sometimes very, very wary of extroverts. So, you know, even just going on a, a podcast to talk for 45 minutes uh, can feel daunting. So I empathize absolutely with both you, Christina, and any listeners out there who said, boy, I don't want to have a hard enough time talking to folks who agree with me. I don't want to go seek out others. But I will say that um, a couple points. I, first of all, Empathy and patience are very valuable. Uh, I think that uh, trying to understand uh, why somebody believes uh, earnestly and assuming good faith uh, earnestly in what they believe and working with them to either find common areas of agreement or failing that because that's not often going to be available. It's not always going to be available. Finding... um, at least a modicum of understanding as to why somebody uh, believes what they believe, that's that's valuable. And so if somebody says, hey, I believe X and you don't believe X, you say, well, so why? You know, tell me about why. And listening uh, in that regard, it's an easy thing for a shy person to do. It's a good thing. <laughs> my, my personal trick is to listen, right? Ask somebody to tell, tell you about uh, why they believe what they believe and see where it gets you. I remember, again, as I mentioned at the top, I was a uh, uh, founder and you know supporter and, and member of the campus green party at, at my campus as an undergrad and for one of my classes uh, I had to uh, spend two weeks with a, a student group and I picked the uh, chapter of the college republican so me and these folks were you know totally in disagreement but it was a really useful two weeks for me uh, going to all their events, going to their meetings. And it's not because I came out at the end of the day friends with all of them. I mean, I, I didn't, you know, to be frank. And it's not that they accepted me as one of theirs or, you know, I, I'm not even sure we gained uh, all that much of a, you know, a dialogue. But after that, I understood 
their good faith motivations. And when I say good faith, I mean, their earnest beliefs in what they believe. And that was useful for me to think of them not just as ciphers or, you know, badly written op-eds or whatever I, I thought, right? But just to think of them as people. And even if I didn't agree, and I think I left probably more firmly entrenched in my beliefs than, than otherwise, but I had understood uh, more about them, you know, and, and their thinking. And that was useful to me, uh, in general, you know, uh, one thing I think we encourage folks to do is to find the smartest folks who disagree with you and talk to them, you know, or read them and figure out what their best arguments are and to try and strengthen your own thinking in that way. Another story I, I often tell and I think about quite a bit is when I first got to fire again, having been working with the campus green party, I was, you know, a, a very vigorous opponent of the uh, Iraq war under uh, the second president Bush and my boss, you know, cause fire takes all kinds. We, we really have employees from across the political spectrum. My bought, my boss was a supporter of the war. So we got into it and he was just so much better prepared <laughs> to debate uh, and to explain, you know, why he thought his views were right. I just, I hadn't been talking to folks who were supporters of the war and I really, you know, had a hard time explaining the basis of my opposition because I had just been talking to folks who agreed with me. So I found it actually really useful to talk to somebody who disagreed with me so I could kind of say, ah, okay, I need to, I need to go back and bone up, you know, like, <laughs> let me, let me, uh, let me, let me do some research. I'll be back. And that was kind of interesting for me too. That was a useful experience. So talking to people who you disagree with, right. You might not change their mind. They might've changed yours, but you might understand better why you believe what you believe and certainly why they believe what they believe. And that can be, clarifying or, or useful for your own thinking. You might get better answers that way. You know, um, the writer, Jonathan Rausch, talks about this as the process of liberal science, right? You've got a hypothesis. Free speech protects our right to take our individual hypotheses about politics, about life, social gatherings, whatever, and kind of put, take them on the world. And then if you, you know, if everybody hates your idea, that's useful too, right? Like if you come back and everybody's disagree with you, well, then you can tinker and reform your hypothesis and try again. And in that way, we can get a little bit closer to understanding of the truth. And I think that's that's important. A little bit of humility, a little bit of empathy, a lot of listening. I think all those things are my tips. Thank you. Those are wonderful tips for helping universities stay marketplaces of ideas with intellectual vitality, where people can speak without being afraid because they know both the limits and the possibilities of their First Amendment rights. Uh, for listeners, Will has graciously provided a bibliography of further resources, and the FIRE website has more information to get you started in understanding what your First Amendment rights are and aren't as a professor or a student. Um, thank you so much for being here today, Will, and talking to us about this very important topic. Oh, I really appreciate it. It's an honor and a privilege, and, and I should just ask folks if you're out there and, and listening and have questions about anything I've said here, uh, definitely please do check out our website. And also uh, you can email me. I'm will, W-I-L-L at the fire.org. Uh, if you're on campus, if you are a student or faculty member and, and your rights have been violated or you think uh, somebody you know says, please get in touch with us. That's what we do. Uh, we are free. We are nonpartisan. Uh, we are here to help. So uh, it's a real honor. Thank you so much, Christina. Thank you. We have been talking with Will Creeley, who's the legal director at FIRE. FIRE is the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. This is The Academic Life on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler. Please join me again.